0: jesus was making his way as you remember in matthew is making his way from the sea of galilee which is this region uh, in the northern part of israel and he's leaving to move towards jerusalem which is about right there on the map and as he's leaving the sea of galilee in that region he crosses over the jordan river and then back and on his way to jerusalem he pauses In the area of Jericho, now Jericho in the Old Testament, as you remember, God had brought judgment against the people of Jericho and the city of Jericho, and it was destroyed. Uh, But that city was never rebuilt. But its sister was built right next to it. In fact, today, if you go to Israel, which we're going next year, I'd love for you to go with us. Uh, if you go you can see the tell israel the ruins uh, excuse me of jericho you can see tell jericho where the ruins are and next to that you'll see a very vivacious living city of jericho that's been rebuilt next door one of the gospel writers says that jesus interacts with the people we're going to read about today as he's coming out of jericho another gospel writer says he does it when he's coming into jericho and you might wonder well why why is there a discrepancy there Well there's actually two Jerichos. There's the old ancient Jericho and the one that actually has people thriving and living within. And Jesus is doing that. He's on his way ultimately to Jerusalem. He and a whole bunch of other folks are moving in that direction because the Passover is coming near. There's some things that Jesus wants to accomplish in the week of that holy week that he wants to make sure that there are clear instructions that are given. But there's also some some things that are being done along the way that really identify who Jesus Christ is as the Son of God. And Matthew certainly wants us to understand that. In fact, Matthew is going to identify something that happens uh, in Matthew 20, which we're going to read about, but it's very familiar with him because the conditions of it are similar to what happened to him back in Matthew 9. In fact, in Matthew 9, Matthew is a tax collector who is confronted by Jesus, and Jesus calls him out of that life of greed and materialism and cheating and extortion, and calls him to be a follower of him, and says, I want you to follow me. And Matthew drops everything, and he follows after Christ. And this, this is his saving moment of faith that Jesus is the Messiah. And then right after that, in Matthew 9, Jesus is uh, there in the proximity of two blind men who call out to him son of David have mercy on me and that's a pattern that's established because that same pattern happens again in Matthew 20 this time the tax collector is not Matthew it's Zacchaeus Luke gives us the the narrative there Zacchaeus is gloriously saved by Jesus who comes to him and says, hey, I'm coming to your house. Everybody wants to sing the song in your head right now, right? And then after that, in Matthew 20, we find out after Zacchaeus is saved by faith that Jesus comes in contact with a couple of blind men who call out, son of David, have mercy on us. So it's an amazing little uh, parody there, if you will, a parallel of the narratives. And I think what happens in, in this context is that Matthew is saying the beginning of the ministry that he experienced with Jesus was this way, and now here he is towards the end of his ministry with Jesus prior to the week of Passover and his last week of life, and he's saying he's still the same. And I think the culmination of those two are making a proclamation that all the ministry of Christ beginning to end and beyond is about God's mercy, that God is a merciful God. And he is demonstrating that in these bookend-type narratives that we're seeing in Matthew 9 and Matthew 20, where they're so paralleled. Now, let's look in chapter 20, verse 29 and following. And as they went out of Jericho, a great crowd followed him, and behold... There were two blind men sitting, two blind men sitting by the roadside, and when they heard that Jesus was passing by, they cried out, "Lord, have mercy on us, Son of David." The crowd rebuked them, telling them to be silent, but they cried out all the more, "Lord, have mercy on us, Son of David." And stepping and stopping, Jesus called them and said, "What do you want me to do for you?" And they said to him, "Lord, let our eyes be opened." Jesus, in pity, touched their eyes. Immediately they recovered their sight and followed him. So you have these same proclamations from two different groups, both of whom are blind. Have mercy on us, Son of David, or Lord, have mercy on us, Son of David. I think he's highlighting the fact that the mercy of God is extended through Jesus Christ. There's one thing that Matthew wants us to understand is that God is a God of mercy and his mercy is given to us in Jesus. Now, he personally understood that mercy. If anybody needed mercy in the day of Christ, it was Matthew. I mean, he was given to everything but that of the things of God and God has called him out of that through Christ. So before he writes about the triumphant entry, which we're going to talk about soon, before he does that, he wants us to see more of this mercy of God. So here they're calling out to him, have mercy on us, son of David. Now that caught Jesus' attention, which is really interesting because there is a crowd of people. If we were going to watch it out of Hollywood, the crowd of people would probably be 45 or so that were sort of fill-ins in the cast, and the visual wouldn't be very big. But in Jesus' day, not only was Jericho a big community, but it's a thoroughfare to Jerusalem. And The people are coming in mass numbers into Jerusalem because the Holy Week is about to uh, come about. So here you have this movement of people and vastness of of noise, but yet Jesus is attentive to two guys who are calling out to him for mercy. It's not the first time that somebody has called out for mercy in Jericho. In fact, several centuries prior to that, there was a woman who called out for mercy. She was a prostitute. And she called out for mercy because she understood that God was bringing judgment against her people and their city. She heard that because two spies had come into the city and she knew that they were there. And they served the God who destroyed his enemies along the way. So she calls out in mercy and God extends to her mercy and she alone is rescued along with her family. Now, Matthew really wants us to understand that this happened in Jericho, the very place where we are in chapter 20, because he gives us that detail. Now, think about this for a moment. This woman becomes a hero to the Jewish people. She's a hero because she's one who has been rescued and had evidence of God's mercy. She comes into the camp of Israel, and she begins to flourish there under the God of Israel. In fact, Matthew was so certain about that, he wanted us to know by placing her in the genealogy of Jesus that is listed in Matthew chapter 1. And the reason why he did is because as the one who has received mercy, she becomes the mother of Boaz, who is the great-grandfather of King David. So she really stands out as not just one who has received mercy, but one who has received grace. So God's ear is attentive to the one who is crying out to mercy, and he is longing to give that to the one who cries out. He's doing that for these blind men who are calling out to him as the son of David. Now, if you remember, son of David is a messianic title. It's a title that was given by God to David, who God said, I will bring forth an eternal king through you, and he will rule in the kingdom that is eternal. And so all along the way, people were looking for descendants of David, men who might be the son of David, that promised one who all the promises of of God would be found yes in. They were looking for him. So when the blind men call out to Jesus, son of David, it's not just a title. What they're saying is, you are the promised one of God through David You are the Lord, you have authority over all things, and so if you want my eyes to be open, you can make them open, you alone are Lord, and you are compassionate, and he is going to demonstrate just how compassionate he is. So I want to focus on those three things, that Jesus is the Son of God, Son of David, he's the Son uh, who is the Lord, and he is one who is compassionate. Now, Matthew certainly wants us to understand that, as did other gospel writers that Jesus is the son of David. Remember, God sent a messenger from heaven to Mary before Jesus was conceived by the Holy Spirit. And the messenger of God to Mary was this. Speaking of that son to be conceived, he will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father, David. So from the outset... God was saying, here is the son of David. Here's the promised one. Now, Matthew is so certain that you and I get this that he puts it in chapter 1, verse 1 of his gospel. He says, here's the genealogy of Jesus. Here, here's what, how he came about. He is the son of David. And throughout Matthew's account, we've come across people that have come to know him as that son of David. For instance, there was a demon-possessed man who was blind and mute, and when Jesus freed him of that oppression, demonic oppression, the crowds began to say, can this be the son of David? Because who else could do that? Only, only the son of David could do that. I promised one. That's what the prophet Isaiah said he would be able to do. And not just Gentile, uh, excuse me, Hebrews, but Gentiles as well. There was a woman who had a daughter who is oppressed by a demon, and she comes to Jesus imploring him to help her, and she says this, "Have mercy on me, O Lord, Son of David." So even Gentiles come to understand that He is the promised one to David, who would have an eternal throne, not just a throne for Israel, but an eternal throne for all people which Jesus himself will sit upon. So Son of David is a big understanding, and it's a big, uh, big treasure for us to have Matthew's account of all those things. So the blind are asking, Hey, you, Jesus, Son of David, come do to us what only God can do. Come do to us, opening the eyes of, of our uh, blindness, the only way that the one who is of the prophet Isaiah could do. So Isaiah the prophet said, here are some things that the, pro- that the uh, Messiah will do, the son of David will do. And as Jesus is doing those, people are coming to discover him as that. One of the interesting places in the scripture is where John, who baptized Jesus, was nearing the end of his life. He was imprisoned, and he was soon to be executed. And he sent some of his followers, his disciples, to Jesus, just sort of as a, a check. Hey, are you really... The one, or should we be looking for someone else? Because in his circumstance, he had a hard time rationalizing that. So remember what Jesus, the word that he sent back to the disciples? He said, go tell John, by the disciples, go tell John what you're seeing. And what are the, one of the things that Jesus points to, the blind are receiving their sight. Listen, only God can do that. Only God could make a blind person be able to see. I wish I could do that, but only God can do that. Now, there's some some so-called miracle workers that would say they could do that, but I say, hey, jump in my truck, we'll go down to Callahan Hospital in Birmingham and we'll empty the place out. That's one of those things that only God can do. Only God can restore sight to the one who is blind. And here, God is in person before these two blind men and they will certainly come to discover who He is all the fully Now, they're crying out to him because they get that. They get that he is the God, the king of the universe. They get that he is the promised one of God, which all promises unlock and come to bear. They get that. No wonder they're crying out loudly for him to come to them. They need him in desperation. It's as if they get a sense that he will not be coming this way again. And if we're going to receive our sight, it will be now. So they call out to him. Hey, some of you have been dabbling With this idea of coming to faith in Jesus Christ. Been sort of dabbling with this idea of forsaking all others to follow him. You've been sort of thinking about it and playing around with the idea. How long is this going to go on? I'm going to tell you like the blind men would tell you. Jesus will not always be persistent in the time and place where he is right now. They understood that. Their opportunity was then. If they were going to be transformed, it was going to be then. And so they call out to him. Some of you are thinking, well, I'm just going to put it off and wait till the end. First of all, God may not speak to you like he's speaking to you now. And secondly, your heart may be too hardened to even hear him when he does. So come to him now. There's a sense of urgency about it to come to him while he's extending mercy. He will not always extend mercy. There will be a day when his mercy will be complete and his justice will be served. So come to him now. So people who truly understand that reality move towards him because they discover their plight and they know their plight, but yet they know the hope that is found in him. And so they unabashedly cry out to him, call for him for his mercy, and he moves towards them. These men didn't cover up the fact that they were... Blind. They didn't cover up the fact that they had need. In fact, they call out to him and let everybody know that they're in desperate need for Christ. Listen, I'm telling you, the one who is genuinely converted comes to understand their plight in their heart, and they call out to God. They could care less who is around them. They're not worried about being embarrassed. They're not in hopes that maybe somebody won't see them. Maybe somebody won't ask them. Listen, they are, they are unabashed to come to Jesus for his mercy. When you discover your plight and the hope that's in Christ, you too will come that way. I have an idea that there's some folks around that think Christianity can be covert. It can't. Oh, Randy, faith is a private matter. Never in the scripture is it. It's meant to be a public matter. Here's blind men who come to follow Jesus Christ and they serve him the rest of their days. And that's what you and I are to do. You say, well, Can I not do this in quietness? Oh, not if you're going to obey the words of Christ, which says, speak the gospel to all the nations. Can I just kind of do it in the back scene? Not if you're going to bear the light to the darkness of the world. You're going to have to be forward in your movement of faith and you're going to have to be forward in your movement and experience with Christ. I'd say until a person understands their spiritual blindness, there is no hope of receiving spiritual sight from God. And until a person understands their sin, they will not receive the righteousness of Christ. Until a person understands their trespasses, they will not be forgiven of those trespasses against God. The power of God is coming to that understanding that Christ alone can can redeem you and bring you to yourself. The power of the gospel is not, hey, you accepting Christ and inviting him into your heart. That is not the power of the gospel. The power of the gospel is you recognizing your brokenness and sin and your absolute pitiful state without Jesus Christ and coming to the hope of him. The power of the gospel is that he can transform a sinner like me and you. So while you're trying to accept get people to accept Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit is trying to convince them of their need of Christ. I think we ought to be on the side of the Holy Spirit. Before these guys were healed of their blindness, they called out in their blindness for mercy. And before you're going to be redeemed from your sin, you're going to have to call out to him in your sin to redeem you, to remove that sin, to wash it, to cleanse you, so that you might experience his righteousness. The beauty of the gospel comes only after people to discover the ugliness of life without it. When we discover that ugliness and yield it to Christ, man, does he ever transform us. John Phillips wrote in his commentary, the reason we have so many false professions in our churches is that people are talked into accepting Christ without first being made aware of their lostness. Yeah, people, Jesus didn't come so that we may accept him Jesus came to make sinners acceptable to God. I pray that you're there, that you're recognizing the lostness and how Christ alone can transform you. Saved people come to discover those truths and with their conditioned heart by the Spirit of God who conditions them, they come to understand the need that only God can satisfy in Jesus and they seek Him because He's seeking them. Philip Yancey wrote in his book, ask most people what they must do to get into heaven. And they will say, be good. Ask Jesus what we need to do to get to heaven. And he will say, cry, cry for help. So blindness was common in Jesus' day. It was common because the injuries would happen to the eye and there was no really hope for a injury like that are common with the infections that were chronic in those days in the underdeveloped world it's still an issue today particularly among infants there's infection in the birthing process and many a child uh, has a result of blindness from that i remember when our first son was born and those nurses took him from k and began to clean him and take his footprints and finger handprints and all that. And one of the things they did made me mad. Took their thumb, raised up his eye, and put some ointment in there. I don't, I don't know why you just did that to my boy. Well, what she was doing was giving him an antibiotic that was essential for him, not to have blindness. They didn't have that in the first century. So the blind were there. They would often congregate in and around the cities because they were unable to work. They needed a lot of people. They would call out for alms to be given to them. A prime place would be Jericho. Not only was the population more significant than other communities, but it was en route to Jerusalem. And especially at one of the holy days that's approaching, there would be many people there. So they're calling out for people to give them money, but then they hear that Jesus is in town. Just 15 miles outside of Jerusalem is Bethany. and It's there in Bethany that Jesus has raised a dead man from the grave. His name is Lazarus. We sang about that just a moment ago. And they heard about that. If he can raise a dead man, then he can surely give sight to dead eyes. So they start to call out to him. They begin to recognize in their blindness only Jesus could do something to change that. They needed him. Perhaps that's where you are. We're all spiritually blind. I know you may have your sight, physical sight, but we are all born with spiritual blindness, unable to see the things of God. I know that to be true because I've shared the gospel with people. I've shared the the narrative of what Jesus has done and accomplished and where he is now and sort of asked them to... Uh, speak out of that situation that I've just shared with them and they'll say things like this, "Eh, you know, I just don't see it. I just don't see it. Well, of course they don't see it. They can't see it. They're spiritually blind, just like I was prior to Christ opening my eyes. It's the heart where sin is that makes our eyes be unable to see spiritual things. But God is the one who can take the scales off our eyes and give us spiritual sight and be able to discover who Jesus is. Sin in people's hearts is the issue, but Jesus can cure that. So if you're among the few who are seeing the things of God, you're among the people who have been touched by God. If you know His glory and you experience His glory, if you are able to worship Him in the midst of His presence, if you can read His Word and be able to understand His Word and apply it to your life, you have been touched uniquely by God. His sight has been given to you. And that's a treasure. Or maybe you don't see the things of God. Maybe you can't quite understand the things of God. Then ask God to give you sight. Jesus moves to people like that who are broken, and he does so with compassion. Look at the latter part of this section. Again, in verse 32, 33, and 34. And stopping, Jesus called them and said, What do you want me to do for you? They said to him, Lord, let our eyes be open." And Jesus, in pity, touched their eyes, and immediately they recovered their sight and followed him. So regardless of the crowd and the probable chaos that's going on around them, Jesus has compassion towards these two. Not many people would have compassion to the blind. In fact, people often associated blindness with sin. In almost every instance of Scripture, it's that way that if someone's blind, there's an assumption that there's some major sin in their life. One day, Jesus and the disciples were walking, and the disciples stopped and said to him about a man, hey, who sinned, this man or his parents? Remember that? It was because the man was blind. There was an automatic assumption that blindness was a result of sin. So not only were they rejected because they had no value to society, could give no input to society, work, They were pushed to the out because they were sinful, at least perceived to be. But Jesus, Jesus doesn't think that way. Jesus goes to where they are. He goes to them. Now, everybody else is trying to quieten those guys, partly because they don't want the the trouble that Jesus would have to go through. There's an interesting word that Matthew used to describe what's happening there as they're calling out. It's krazo. And that word is is a word that just is an irritating, screeching cry. Uh, it is the same word that you use to describe what crows do. Anybody have crows that hang out around your place? Uh, okay, we're the only ones, right? <laughs> uh, no, there's some others. I love to hear the birds sing. Kay and I will sit out and we'll just listen to all that sound and the beauty of that. But man, a crow is not like that. A crow is pestering. A crow is a nuisance to me. we got some hawks that come around and I know that the hawks are around because the crows go crazy couple of eagles that nest a ridge or two over and when they circle around our place or they land anywhere close to our place man the crows go crazy and it's not like this they just call out with that screechy call they keep on doing it over and over and over that's the word that Matthew uses to describe the call of these men how annoying they were how loud they were able to be heard over everything else they are unashamed to call out to Jesus Because they know he's a man of pity. He's a God of compassion. Jesus, out of his compassion, goes to them. That word, pity, as it is in the English standard, or as the King James would say, compassion, that word is difficult, actually, to translate from the original language of the Bible. We don't have a word in English that coincides with that original language word. But I'll give you a picture of it. It's a sick-in-the-gut feeling that moves you to respond. I call it a kick-in-the-gut. Have you seen something, heard something, watched it transpire, and it hits you in the gut, and it forced you to move towards that with compassion? Have you had that experience? Yeah, the word for us is the gut. We, we have a gut feeling. The Hebrews, this isn't going to translate well, but the Hebrews said it's of the spleen. Anybody had a thought in your spleen lately? <laughs> no. It's just a different mindset altogether. The word in the original language comes from the spleen. So it's a, it's a feeling in the spleen or for us a kick in the gut. Now the reason why that's important is because the enemy of God, Satan, tries to convince you and me that in our moment of failure, God wants nothing to do with us. When you fail and when you sin, when you transgress against God, he comes in an accusatory way, and not only does he belittle you in your sin, he will attempt to convince you, and he's pretty doggone good at it, That God wants nothing to do with you, that God doesn't want to hear your worship, God does not want to hear your singing and praise, and God does not want you to be engaged in his word, he doesn't want you to pray, he's sort of ticked off at you right now. But that is not Christ. Christ sensing and seeing and experiencing our failures has a kick in the gut response that he moves towards us in our sin. You say, how do I know that to be true? Because he will go after the one in their brokenness, leaving the 99. That's a kick in the gut movement right there. It's just the way of Christ. So some of you may be thinking, God wants little to do with me, and I'm here to tell you that God has everything that he wants to do to you, for you, and he's pressing towards you out of great compassion. I I pray that you're addressing that. So Jesus is the most compassionate person who's ever lived, Certainly the compassionate king of the universe, he touched people and healed them like no others. Jesus in his compassion approached the unapproachable, curing those who were in serious disease, skin disorder disease like leprosy. It's in his compassion a kick in the gut response to kneel down and pick up the one who is lame. Or to touch the eyes of the blind and give them sight. It's a a movement towards those who are in sexual bondage like a prostitute and bring her out. It's a movement towards those who are greedy and materialism and idolistic, towards those things that they can have. And Jesus rescues them from that like Zacchaeus and Matthew. It's a movement to those who are bound in religion and can't see their way out to the hope of mercy and grace. That Jesus goes to them, presses to them so that they might know the hope that is found in him. That's who Jesus goes after. That's you and me. He's not going after the elite, the ones that have it all together. In fact, he says the physicians don't need somebody, excuse me, the sick are the ones that need someone, not those who are well. So Jesus is reaching for us. He's calling out to us. And when he does, he asks a very simple question. What do you want me to do for you? Now you would think that Jesus would know that. If he's the son of David, it means he's the son of God. If he knows all things, why is he having to ask? I can tell you he doesn't have to ask. But those two men need to respond. And he's going to ask them very specifically, what do you want me to do for you? I can tell you he's asking the same thing today. Now, you might be tempted to keep it in generalities. I would say that's a deadly mistake that Jesus does not allow general answers to a very specific question, what do you want me to do? Jesus wants to hear from you because you need to hear yourself saying it to him. You need to come to the place of recognizing your sin and say it to him. I want you to cure me of this. I want this gone from my life. I want to get out of this dark state of depression. I don't want to be in sexual bondage anymore. I don't want to be broken in my relationships. I don't want to die of cancer. You need to hear yourself saying that to him. And then as you say it to him, you're saying it to the one who you can have hope in. Your faith is given to him as an object of your faith. And in that, Jesus will move. Oh, it may or may not be the movement that you want, but it'll be the right movement in love. And it may or may not transpire in the time that we have, but it will be in the eternal scope. And one day we will give him great glory for that. So, What does Jesus want to do in your life? I can tell you he wants to bring you freedom. He wants to bring you hope. He wants to reconcile what's broken and out of balance. He wants to redeem you. He wants to rescue you. But he rescues only the ones who acknowledge their need of rescue. Come to him today. Father, help us in this moment to hear your spirit calling out to us. The Spirit of Christ saying, what do you want me to do for you? And let our response be very specific with great faith and confidence. I ask, Lord, by your Spirit for the one who is in need of salvation that they would trust and believe in Jesus the Messiah, the Son of David who is the Son of God. I ask, Lord, that they would humble themselves and acknowledge their sin and brokenness And reach out to you, the one who can make them whole. I pray, Lord, for the one who needs to experience your restoration today. I pray that they would receive it fully by your grace and mercy through your son, Jesus. And in that may he be glorified and our lives transformed. In the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen.